Chapter 15 of Electricity and Magnetism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Evans. Electricity and Magnetism by Elisha Gray. Chapter 15 Telephony. In the foregoing chapters I have described the method of transmitting musical tones telegraphically and its applications to multiple telegraphy, as well as to a mode of communicating with a moving railroad train. As I stated in a former chapter, after discovering a method of transmitting harmony as well as melody, I had in mind two lines of development, one in the direction of multiple telegraphy and the other that of the transmission of articulate speech. I will not attempt to give the names of all the people who have contributed to the development of the telephone, as this alone would fill a volume, but only describe my own share in the work, leaving history to give each one due credit for his part. While I do not intend here to enter into any controversy regarding the priority of the invention of the telephone, I wish to say that from the time I began my researches in the winter of 1873-74, until some time after I had filed my specification for a speaking or articulating telephone in the winter of 1875-76, I had no idea that anyone else had done or was doing anything in this direction. I wish to say further that if I had filed my description of a telephone as an application for a patent instead of as a caveat, and had prosecuted it to a patent without changing a word in the specification as it stands today, I should have been awarded the priority of invention by the courts. I am borne out in this assertion by the highest legal authority. In law, a caveat, a Latin word meaning let him beware, is a warning to other inventors to protect an incomplete invention, whereas in fact the invention to be protected may be complete. An application for a patent is presumed by the law to be for a completed invention but it may be, and very often is, incomplete. It would often make a very great difference if decisions were rendered according to the fact in the case rather than according to rules of law and practice that sometimes work great injustice to individuals. As has been said in another chapter, in the summer of 1874, I went to Europe in the interest of the telephone taking my apparatus, as then developed, with me. I came home early in the fall and resumed my experimental work. Many interesting as well as amusing things occurred during these experiments. I remember that in the fall or early winter of 1874, I was in Milwaukee with my apparatus carrying on some experiments on a wire between Milwaukee and Chicago. I had my musical transmitter along, and one evening, for the entertainment of some friends at the Newhall House, a wire was stretched across the street from the telegraph office into one of the rooms of the hotel. 
a great number of tunes were played at the telegraph office by Mr. Goodrich, who was my assistant at that time, which were transmitted across the street, as before stated. In those days it was a common practice in telegraphy to use one battery for a great number of lines. For instance, starting with one ground wire which connected with, say, the negative pole of the battery, from the positive pole two, three, or a half dozen lines might be connected, running in various directions, connecting with the ground at the further end, thus completing their circuits. For use in transmitting tones across the street that evening, we connected our line wire on to the telegraph company's battery, which consisted of one hundred or more cells, and which had four or five more lines radiating from the end of the battery to different parts of Wisconsin. Our line was tapped on to the battery, without changing any of its connections, twenty cells from the ground wire. In transmitting, each vibration would momentarily shut off these twenty cells from the lines that were connected with the whole battery. The effect of this, an effect that we did not anticipate at the time, was to send a vibratory current out on all the lines that were connected with that single battery, as well as across the street. A great many familiar tunes were played during the course of an hour or two, which, unconsciously for us, were creating great consternation throughout the state of Wisconsin, in many of the offices through which these various lines passed. Next morning, reports and inquiries began to come in from various towns and cities, west, northwest, and north, giving details of the phenomena that were noticed on the instruments located in the various offices along the lines. They reported their relays as singing tunes. One party said he thought the instruments were holding a prayer meeting, from the fact that they seemed to be singing hymn tunes for quite a while but this notion was finally dissipated because they grew hilarious and sang Yankee Doodle. One operator up in the pine woods of northern Wisconsin did not seem to take the cheerful view of it that some of the others did. He was sitting alone in the telegraph office that evening when he thought he heard the notes of a bugle in the distance. He got up and went to the door to listen, but could hear nothing. But on coming back into the room he heard the same bugle notes very faintly. He was inclined to be somewhat superstitious, and grew very nervous. Finally, on looking around, he located the sound in his relay. But this did not help matters with him. With superstitious awe, he listened to the instrument for a few moments, while it gave out the solemn tones of Old Hundred. Then it suddenly jumped into a hilarious rendering of Yankee Doodle. Oh, this was too much for our nervous friend, and hastily putting on his overcoat, he left the office for the night. On another occasion, when I was giving a lecture in one of the cities outside of Chicago, where exhibitions of music transmitted from Chicago were given, one of the operators along the line was very much astonished by his switchboard suddenly becoming musical. Orders had been given for the instruments in all the local offices to be cut out of the particular line that I was using. Hence the instrument in this particular office was not in the circuit through which the tunes were being transmitted. The wire, however, ran through his switchboard, and owing probably to a loose connection or an induced effect, 
there was a spark that leaped across a short space at each electrical pulsation that passed through the line, thus reproducing the notes of the various tunes played. You will remember in one of the chapters on sound, volume two, it is stated that a musical tone is made up of a succession of sounds repeated at equal intervals, and that the pitch of the tone is determined by the number of sound impulses per second. Applying this law to the sparks, you will be able to see how the switchboard played tunes for the operator. In the foregoing experiments in transmitting musical tones telegraphically, I used a great many different varieties of receivers. Some of them were designed with metal diaphragms mounted over single electromagnets, not unlike the receiver of an ordinary telephone. These instruments would both transmit and receive articulate speech when placed in circuit with the right amount of battery to furnish the necessary magnetism. However, they were not used in that way at the time they were first made, in 1874. These I called common receivers, as they were designed to reproduce all tones equally well. I designed and constructed another form of receiver based somewhat upon the theory of the harmonic telegraph. This consisted of an electromagnet of considerable size mounted upon a wooden rod about ten feet long. Mounted upon this rod were also resonating boxes or tubes made of wood of the right size to have their air cavities correspond with the various pitches of the transmitting reeds, so that each tone would be reinforced by some one of these air cavities, thus giving a louder and more resonant effect to the musical notes. Here were two types of receiver, one that would receive one sound as well as another, but none of them so loud, while the other was constructed on the principle of selection and reinforcement, so that a particular note would be sounded by the box having a cavity corresponding to the pitch of the tone, and was much louder and of much better quality than I could get from the diaphragm receiver. One of these receivers pointed to the harmonic telegraph and the other to the speaking telephone. I knew that I had a receiver that would reproduce articulate speech or anything else that could be transmitted. My first conceptions of an articulate speech transmitter were somewhat complicated. I conceived of a funnel made of thin metal having a great number of little riders insulated from the funnel at one end and resting lightly in contact with the funnel at the other end. These riders were to be made of all sizes and weights, so as to be responsive to all rates of vibration. In the light of the present day, we know that such an arrangement would have transmitted articulate speech, but perhaps not so well as a single point would do when properly adjusted. My mind clung to this idea till in the fall of 1875, when an observation I made upon the street changed the whole course of my thinking and solved the problem. The incident I refer to took place in Milwaukee, where I was then experimenting. One day, while out on an errand, I noticed two boys with fruit cans in their hands, having a thread attached to the center of the bottom of each can and stretched across the street, perhaps one hundred feet apart. They were talking to each other the one holding his mouth to his can, and the other his ear. 
At that time I had not heard of this lover's telegraph, although it was old. It is said to have been used in China two thousand years ago. The two boys seemed to be conversing in a low tone with each other, and my interest was immediately aroused. I took the can out of one of the boys' hands, rather rudely as I remember it now, and putting my ear to the mouth of it, I could hear the voice of the boy across the street. I conversed with him a moment, then noticed how the cord was connected at the bottom of the two cans, when, suddenly, the problem of electrical speech transmission was solved in my mind. I did not have an opportunity immediately to construct an instrument, as I had a partner who was furnishing money for the development of the harmonic telegraph and would not listen to any collateral experiments. I remember sitting down by this partner one day and telling him what I could do in the way of transmitting speech through a wire. I told him I thought it would be very valuable if worked out. He gave me a look that I shall never forget, but he did not say a word. The look conveyed more meaning than all the words he could have said, and I did not dare broach the subject again. However, as soon as I found the opportunity, without saying a word to anybody except my patent lawyer, I filed a description accompanied by drawings of a speaking telephone which stands in history today as the first complete description on record of the operation of the speaking telephone. It described an apparatus which, when constructed, worked as described, and it is a matter of history that the first articulate speech electrically transmitted in this country was by a transmitter constructed on the principle described, and almost identically after the drawings in my caveat. While the transmitter described in this caveat was not the best form, it would transmit speech, and it contained the foundation principle of all the telephone transmitters in use today. There are two methods of transmitting speech. One is known as the magneto method and the other that of varying the resistance of the circuit. My first transmitter was devised on the latter principle. I append to this extracts from my specification filed February 14, 1876. Quote, to all whom it may concern, be it known that I, Elisha Gray of Chicago in the county of Cook and state of Illinois, have invented a new art of transmitting vocal sounds telegraphically, of which the following is a specification. It is the object of my invention to transmit the tones of the human voice through a telegraphic circuit, and reproduce them at the receiving end of the line, so that actual conversations can be carried on by persons at long distances apart. I have invented and patented methods of transmitting musical impressions or sounds telegraphically, and my present invention is based upon a modification of the principle of said invention, which is set forth and described in Letters Patent of the United States, granted to me July 27, 1875, respectively numbered 166095 and 166096 and also in an application for letters patent of the United States filed by me February 23, 1875. 
my present belief is that the most effective method of providing an apparatus capable of responding to the various tones of the human voice is a tympanum drum or diaphragm stretched across one end of the chamber carrying an apparatus for producing fluctuations in the potential of the electric circuit and consequently varying in its power the vibrations thus imparted are transmitted through an electric circuit to the receiving station in which circuit is included an electromagnet of ordinary construction acting upon a diaphragm to which is attached a piece of soft iron and which diaphragm is stretched across a receiving vocalizing chamber c somewhat similar to the corresponding vocalizing chamber a the diaphragm at the receiving end of the line is thus thrown into vibrations corresponding with those at the transmitting end and audible sounds or words are produced the obvious practical application of my improvement will be to enable persons at a distance to converse with each other through a telegraphic circuit just as they now do in each other's presence or through a speaking tube i claim as my invention the art of transmitting vocal sounds or conversations telegraphically through an electric circuit Unquote. this specification was accompanied by cuts of the transmitter and receiver connected by a line wire and showing one person talking to the transmitter and another listening at the receiver these cuts may be seen in various books on the subject of telephony. End of chapter 15. Recording by Don Evans. www.donmevans.com.